Are you looking for an inspiring listen? Something to motivate you? You've come to the right place. Welcome to Women of the Northwest, where we have conversations with ordinary women leading extraordinary lives. Motivating, inspiring, compelling. Hello and welcome to Episode 12 of Women of the Northwest, the place where meaningful conversations happen with ordinary women leading extraordinary lives. I'm your host, Jan Johnson. I'm delighted to have as a guest today, Nancy Trenbeth, who spent over 40 years championing students with special needs. Her teaching career included work with deaf-blind students, many of which, as a result of the rubella epidemic, those in wheelchairs with multiple challenges, and those who were severely emotionally disturbed. She adopted one of her students who was severely neglected and is now 56 years old, but still functions as a four-year-old. Here's what staff said about her. She was a terrific student of students, staff mentor, leader, nurturer, host organizer, motivator, and encourager, gracious, inspirational, glue holding us together for years and years. She was such a good friend, always caring, making people feel special, thoughtful of birthdays, carefulness of students, always welcoming. We all loved her. Thank you for all the lives you've changed, lives of parents, kids, and adults. This was an interview on a Zoom recording. I hope you enjoy it. And let's begin. Classroom. Well, yeah, our internet is down and it's because we had all the snow and then something, the receiver's up on the hill and the power went out up there and then they're trying to clear a road to get up to it. (laughs) Bad Because now we've got a bunch of rain and it's warmed up, but it's been in the 20s and uh, low 30s. So, but now most of the snow is gone and and in Seattle, it's been crazy. Yeah. Ever. The other night, but we were going to go to see the the wild lanterns at the zoo, and it's it's lights. Yeah, and everybody kept saying, "Oh, do you really want to do that?" Well, six layers of clothes later for me, <laughs> three for my husband. We went out there, and it was so spectacularly beautiful. I can't even tell you. I mean, it was so crazy because it was snow and these fantastic lanterns that they've created. And there were prehistoric animals that were opening their mouths. And one was a baby coming out of an egg and they're lanterns. So they're three-dimensional light sort of, and, uh, and incredible flowers and a tree of butterflies that are moving uh, by light, a 50, 60 foot long Asian dragon. Unbelievable. And a whale whose mouth you walk through, it's a tunnel. And the light was so beautiful. Even my husband, who was really dragging his feet about the whole thing said, this is unbelievable. I am so <laughs> glad we went, you know, because and- that's one thing. If you'd have watched it online or on the TV or on a YouTube, it would not have been the same thing. And shimmering in the snow and the people were, they timed all the entries. So you never felt crowded and you were outside. And um, here were all these joyous people just going, ooh, ah, and walking through these these lights and giant flowers that twinkled. And, you know, there's a lot of good that comes out of all this crazy. 
I know, I know, I know more experiences. I, one of the things that um, my mom, she said, I can't give you any, anything better than experiences, <laughs> you know? And I guess that's the one thing I kind of have carried over is. You have a lot of enthusiasm. I can hear it in you. Infant. And if you have enthusiasm, you know, life's a, it's a picnic basket. You just keep <laughs> up and picking out something else you want to try and like. And yeah, I've been stunned at my own um, largesse of collection and paper. And, but it's, it's all because I've had a huge life, you know, and just, I'm very grateful for it. But flip side, what? the wonderful thing is the kids who are not able to write, it's too laborious and whatever, they can just speak it and it becomes the story in their head. And, you That's know, so there's, <laughs> there's that. <laughs> Saying one of my grandmothers said, and she died at 92, 30 years ago. I've lived when there was no indoor plumbing, Mm -hmm. still used horses, that we watched the car. And then as life went on after the depression, which if they were lucky, they lived through. Right. uh, Then then there was um, the space race Mm -hmm. and lived to see a man on the moon and to fly. Yep. You know, this incredible. And I was thinking, well, how do we then look at our time period? And of course, now we've got people going up in in, uh, spacecrafts for the pleasure of it to decide whether or not other people can do this on a regular basis. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah. and, And I think the hardest thing for me to reconcile is that. I always have felt that especially in any kind of special services for people with developmental delays, physically, mentally, emotionally, this is a real hard era because people are so caught up in the technology that they're not necessarily focusing on what's so important at the base of it all, which is how do you connect with a human being? That's what my career we adopted one of my students 46 years ago because he was so bereft he had just nothing he'd been left by a group home that never came back to visit and and Eddie's life has been such a lesson in our lives because it's been so challenging he's 56 now but he's four years old Mm -hmm. Uh, Christmas he had all that anticipatory set yeah 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 What's going to happen? Can't wait. Can't wait. And we had this fantastic day and night, which was kind of hard for us to pull together, but it came together beautifully and he got fun things and we had a fire and beautiful meal and our dear friend over and it was all fantastic. So we took him to his totally staffed, lovely apartment where he lives with incredible care and that we supervise. But then the next day he was supposed to have an outing with my first student teacher who became my second aide. Oh, five years ago. Anyhow, she and her family also have maintained this very treasured and rare 
ongoing relationship with Eddie. Mm-hmm. There's so few people that come into those people's right. lives on a regular basis. Right. Or that are consistent. Well, and it's always you putting out that energy to create it. I mean, they don't. They can't. Right. right. Exactly. They want it. You know, so now this was a big deal. She was going to go to Christmas dinner with those people. And they called on uh, FaceTime and they said, Nancy, my sister's kids came home, both tested positive. Oh, no. We, We have a house full of people who are already exposed. We can't pick up Eddie. I said, well, we understand perfectly. Right. If you're willing, please call Eddie and then we'll follow up. So much disappointment. And his his way of reacting to it through COVID is he's he's pulled 11 fire alarms in his (laughs) apartment complex over COVID. And, and we've been really well. We've gotten away from it for months and months because we keep so much going. And, and uh, you know, that's one of the huge, huge things I did want to talk about, being predictable and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. being trustworthy in any relationship mm-hmm. that makes it. But with these folks, exactly, it's the core, right. not be in our other lives, but here. It's an art you either develop or you never really have the rapport and the the ability to enter that unusual kingdom that they inhabit. And Eddie, who hates the snow because he fell in it once, he (laughs) go out without any shoes or socks on (laughs) and a t-shirt to run around and get into the fire alarm where we had put a protective uh, deterrent from being able to do that, that even though he's got CP on one side and really only the use of his one good arm, he's so clever that he managed to figure out how to get that shield off. I mean, I'd love to have, I, I keep thinking, if I had enough life, I have these secret cameras all over. <laughs> how do you even do that? Yeah. Now, you know, all hell broke loose, and here's this apartment building emptying after the alarm into the snowy night. And I've got to go meet this manager because <laughs> thrown out is one of the miracles of our time, right? I mean, it's so incredible, you know, and these are the good souls that live. There's no restraint for Eddie, mm-hmm. you know to hold him back he has to find that inner restraint Mm -hmm. that kind of leads me into what I learned from all of these children over these years like they had to learn that everything was predictable enough in their environment and that there were intrinsic rewards right positive input that when the going got rough and they were ready to explode or implode, that you could reach out to them, mm-hmm. give them something to at least placate them until you could get back on the right track. I mean, isn't that true in all of our lives when you get right. so frustrated? But with them, I think that was one of the great gifts in my life was to study that. 
There were two really great teachers. I met one of them, Jean Van Dyke from the Netherlands, who taught deaf folks and, and developed so many, especially communication techniques, but then also John McGee, who spoke of gentle teaching. I never got to meet him, but I read so much and and I've employed that concept. And uh, I know that the winning ticket is set up a, a, an environment somebody really wants to be in. Mm-hmm. Somehow get aboard people who want to involve themselves so deeply right. that that student is aware that they are all safe. You know, nothing is going to happen. For 20 years of my 40-year career, a lot of my children were those folks that came out of the rubella epidemic and they were deaf-blind or some variation there. Deafness and blindness are just kind of imperfect names because, of course, you can have no vision, you can have little vision, you can have very odd vision, and the same with hearing. You have different degrees, and all those kids had varying degrees, of, but most of them had no vision and no hearing. And how do you enter that world? You know, I, right. I think of uh, Helen Keller, and Helen Keller had the gift of, I think, almost two years, not quite, 18 months mm-hmm. of early life before some disease, like rubella or scarlet. She had that inner core of visual and hearing experiences and then was dumped mm-hmm. in the blindness and deafness. But right. somewhere she had that. Well, my kids, they never had. It. Right. They were just born that way. And it was so amazing because you reached out to them through tactile sign. I created a, a wonderland of sensory option experiences because, of course, you can't work with it. It's all one to one. Right. Mm hmm. And then the other 20 years were spent between the eddies of the world and a lot of medically fragile folks and a lot with very serious, aggressive. Right. right. It was a very mixed bag. But I got to tell you, they were the greater teachers. What got you started in your interest to doing special ed? Well, it was interesting. I had a history. My, I have a cousin who's now in his 60s and he was born with special needs. And so we interacted our whole childhood, mm-hmm. but no one was very realistic about what were his needs. Mm-hmm. If other, she would say, oh, Nancy, he's just fine. He's just perfect. And I remember the irony of that was that after I got totally immersed in my career and actually knew something about it all, I asked her again, "Yeah, what was Kit, what was he diagnosed with? And she said, well, Nancy, you know, he's just a perfect guy. I said, and Kathleen, I love him. I've always loved him. I know. But I also know there's an importance of a clinical side to folks, because how can you really deal with their core problems if you don't understand Mm -hmm. the things that impact them? But she would never tell me so her daughter after she died sent me his she found in the papers going through them the two pages of summation and uh, and it was very interesting because professionally I understood a right. lot but it was never dealt with or with so 
I had that experience. And then I was a fine arts major in college and an art history minor. Then I decided I wanted to make sure I could teach. And there was always going to be art. (laughs) I was, that's how I started. (laughs) And what a gift in the new degree to actually get my credential. I had to put in so many residencies, so to speak, where you go out. And one of them was with the fine children. And I was their art teacher. Yeah. Some of the little, just slightly higher functioning. Mm -hmm. It was so overwhelming to me. You know, what on earth do you teach people who are deaf and blind about art? Very early on, I, I realized that I was the focus of their joy. When I greeted them, it was like Santa had come. Yeah, yeah. And then I had to get busy and figure out. And from my art background, I'd done lost wax. Right. Right. And so I, I, I got wax and we started to make little things. And then I could sprue invent them and burn them out. And the, the child would have that. Right. Or clay or, yeah. And then clay, of course, and finger paint. <laughs> Actually, finger paint is sometimes not so great because it's too icky. Until you learn it's fun, it's okay. And so that just blew my mind. These kids are unbelievable. Um, and then I also work with very, one of the other practicums was with um, gifted children. And another one was with kids with serious emotional and behavioral Mm. that were horrible. And they all had lessons for me. But the children with these so limited capabilities and, and, and so much response for what you were able to Somehow it just it, it, it just got to my heart. So then I, I was looking and the course was the early 70s and there were no, no jobs in art or mm-hmm. music or drama. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a friend, I moved to Seattle and she was working at Fircrest, which is still a state residential setting for people with disabilities. And she said, would you like to come and see what I do? And I said, sure. That was when you knew you found your calling. (laughs) You know, and it was this school building was a World War II um, infirmary building that was still set up like that infirmary and uh, just crazy, very limited spaces. and, And here were these children that were unbelievable. And afterwards, I was just so grateful I had made that visit and I I went into the office and I said, what do you need to be able to, to work here? And she said, well, what do you have? And I said, well, I I have a fine arts degree and, and I have a teaching credential in art and uh, I have a lot of enthusiasm (laughs) to teach. And she said, well, that's not quite the background we hoped for, but it was new. The whole game was new. Right, yeah. right. Because well, think about when we were in school, there wasn't anything 
those kids were in our classes. I had like, I don't know, close to 40 kids in each of my class and some of them were marginal, but nothing happened. There was no place for them. There was not nobody that looked at them and said, Hey, can I figure out how to help you learn or how learn how you learn so that I can help you. And you know, that integrative effort, when I think of what the teachers did for those children in my life too, that were with me, I I have to applaud them. Mm -hmm. Now, when I look back and I think of those kids and how ostracized some of them felt, Mm -hmm. their inability. And and because no one, PL94-142 was the blessing and the bane because it mandated education for all. Of course, it didn't supply the money. And Mm -hmm. certainly the mindset, fascinating. But anyhow, I was in on those groundbreaking days. My first classroom was an old shower room (laughs) with a table over a drain and shower stalls were, that's where I put in the boards for the, the, the uh, equipment. Yeah. Tables were on the uh, not leaning down into the drain part of the cement so that you could sit there and work with the kid and keep them falling kind of into that drain. I I mean, it was so insane. And I just accepted it because I didn't know. You didn't know anybody And the same here. You know, when I started teaching title one, it was out in a crappy portable, you know, and I'm thinking these guys are, not having the best self-esteem anyway, and you're going to send them out here into, you know, that subpar. (laughs) And, you know, I had to get into it to understand all this and get to know the kids and then become a a big advocate of, you know, moving them into an actual room. And uh, at one point, one of my early rooms, I had uh, 10 students all all of them in wheelchairs. And it was a room that was intended as a one bedroom or two bedroom infirmary room in this old hospital. And so I'd have to move them in to that room. The one in the farthest corner went in first. The second (laughs) one came next to them, the third and so on, getting them into this little space to finally I asked, I said, look, I mean, we got good at it and they loved it at that point to get through those wheelchairs just enough to give everybody a little thing. <laughs> yeah. Right. But it dawned on me as, as reality kind of sink in. I said, what if there's a fire? Yeah. And the answer was, well, Nancy, if there is a fire, you got to get to one of those windows and get those kids out of the wheelchair. <laughs> And and I said, and do what with them? And dump them. <laughs> she said, you got to get them out that window. And, and I said, to whom? Because we were up on blocks, you know, so we weren't on a second story, but we weren't on a first. Yeah. Well, if no one's out there, I said, don't tell me I have to drop them. I mean, th- that can't be the answer. And she said, well, we have to figure this out. I guess if it happened, we'd need to root people over there immediately. <laughs> and I, what? I mean, this, like, this is so nuts. And so wrong. 
go wrong? And and then we had uh, one of the you know the mandates was appropriate education, and of course that wasn't an appropriate place, and it wasn't appropriate in so many ways. But then the district we filed a civil suit because of the inadequacy and and another part of the program had um, a work area that where kids had punched holes in the walls and (laughs) there were varmints that would run by and you know it was kind of overwhelming Uh, and anyhow the suit was that we were inadequately housed and as civil rights they Mm -hmm. needed other place. So that that was what sort of pushed getting into the schools themselves, which of course were very reluctant to do this because and so did you did you play a role in in the advocacy overall for special ed? Oh, oh yeah, big. I was in CEC, which is a council for exceptional children for years. And that was all of this was very good. And then I was president of our district program, ASSET, the Association of Special Ed Teachers. So I had a very broad view of what was going on in the district and also at the state level. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that helped a lot because <clears throat> I gleaned information and I, I knew legally yep. what, what was supposed to exist that didn't. And and I met good people, but and, and these were people who really had a heart for the special students, but in so many ways they just didn't know how to accommodate their needs. And you know we've we've talked about Bill Fritz. I mean he was in this long career. He was really the star of oh you need that you you. You have a need for this particular thing for this student. And and he'd somehow put it together, you know, with the attitude of, of course, this is what we're doing. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to do it. That's so rare. And that's what I was going to say. That was probably rare because you because when you're doing something kind of on a ground floor to saying, hey, when I was a kid, it wasn't uncommon for people to say, oh, they're just a retard. I mean, that was right. You know, and to come from that to know this is a valid human being that we have, you know, we need to make rights to serve them adequately in what they need. So I'm sure you had a lot of pushback from things. I was so stunned about people with the attitude of we we give more than most people give. You know, that that was a great response wherever you go and ask for help or respond. And it was like, well, but that doesn't meet the needs graced with the ability to be effective with students of very differing levels and some Mm -hmm. of some of those folks were incredibly dangerous i mean they came with horrible rap sheets of destruction and hospitalizing staff and it's not magic it's a lot of hard concentrated work in a very structured setting with incredibly clear rewards, Mm -hmm. the ability to keep yourself together so that your response is consistent. Right. And you're worth getting there to be with. Mm -hmm. And you have to develop trust on two levels, trust with your students and trust with your colleagues. That's one of the huge keys, Jan, because of course, 
if you don't have it together with those colleagues and they don't agree with your view of the perfect environment, and of course you get tired because it's not just the teaching itself, it's the downtime, it's this incredible dance. And trying to meet the expectations. Somebody, uh, you know, a classroom teacher that might have higher expectations for that student than what you know they're capable of at the time, or maybe emotionally even ready for at the time. And, and, and you know, that's a huge spectrum because I'm talking about kids who are in a wheelchair for life to those who are running all over. Yep, I know. I know the ones. I know them. <laughs> But with these the, these kids that pose so much possible danger, I knew that if I could be 20 people, I could work one-on-one and we'd probably do fine, but that's not a real model. I think one of the hardest things for teachers with an incredible load of paperwork that goes along with these kids to actually be um, accountable and to focus and be clear on what your goals are. It's a wonderful thing, but that's a job in itself. It's like overwhelming, massive. I knew in my uh, profession that I always needed to be a part of the teaching team, not just somebody who was spewing platitudes, mm-hmm. but doing it, who is demonstrating it. So right. you're a human being too. Somehow, I mean, if you can be lifted by your work, It's that gift of realizing that in that moment, you know, what's most important is being part of a group that does value human presence, participation, teamwork, and coming together. I work with some of the most incredible people, people you want in your life, right? I think the thing that's happened, too, that isn't totally addressed is there's been a lot of grieving, you know? A huge grieving, you know, both both of the loss of people and friends and family and expectations of how things have not been able to socialize and just, you know, your your own knowing you've lost your educational experiences that were not the same. Just about the whole thing of it is a way of life. And I can only imagine, I mean, what I read and talk to people about and coming back into an atmosphere where mm-hmm. they there's fear of how about the kids who won't keep on the mask? Part of it is just be real about it. So when you've gone through all your paperwork and all this and you think back to where you were that first time you walked into that classroom and where you are now, how could you sum up what that meant to you? What were the, the parts that brought you the most joy? Or I, It sounds to me like you've had a life that you've been really felt fulfilled with. It has been such a gift in my life. And and when I do speak to teachers, I I try and remind them of what it was that they wanted to do. But Mm -hmm. it's still that glory of knowing that you can go in. And I consulted for years and I go into places where they didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. There's that child. Mm -hmm. Get on the floor right away. And just kind of sit and lie there. And even the deaf-blind kids, if they were more, they could find me. I always wore a very light but similar scent. 
something that marked you right from the get-go, you know, and never changed it. And they could sense me. And and then I'd literally roll with them, you know, if they wanted to roll. And people would go, well, how do you do that? And I said, well, you just, you get real. You get in the space in life. Mm-hmm. It sounds to me like you look to each individual's heart. Oh, my gosh. And that connection. And, and every one of those incredibly challenging physically aggressive people to this day I still see some of them I actually visit and I go in and with a disabled person what you want to do is have a little idea of what their background was because they and and then you want to enjoy the person but you already have a feel right that gentle approach to uh, a child with disability where you give them assurance that you are who you are, you're going to be able to do the same thing over and over again. By and large, what you're going to do is acknowledge everything that's wonderful about them. Which we should be doing with everyone anyway. Everybody. And, you know, have a reward system. And to me, one of those is writing that note. I also believe the children I find so entrancing, even with their unbelievable needs in some cases, which are so hard to deal with, but they're, they are such great teachers. And subsequently, my life has been so overwhelmingly better. Everything that you want for a special child depends on the ability of the staff on an ongoing basis to say, I'll never forget that. I mean, yeah. I think what we need to come back is an acknowledgement of a all these good things. How, what are the five great things that you can remember? And, and focusing on that because we've been given this gift. So now that you're retired, are you still you still have your finger in this, or you're heading off in different directions? Well, with Eddie, always he and one of my aides started a camp for disabled adults. And they kept asking me to get in, and I simply got Eddie involved because he needed a something else. Mm-hmm. I'm still very involved with that camp, and I was keeping camp going and, and just passing this baton on to a uh, think about a campground and disabled people, too. You know, there's a lot of yeah. things that have to be addressed that, right? And you want to have fun. It's a week where the folks come and they stay six nights and all those days. That's and, a that's a long, a oh big undertaking. To see the meds. I mean, you know, Jan, I feel you and I know you know this, but it's all about where are you coming from? Mm-hmm. How much light can you emanate? And mm-hmm. can you bring people aboard to share that with you and then direct it towards children and then maintain it? Network of people like a bill that when he pulls his little magic, I'll take care of that transportation all about that person, because I, I spent time in those classrooms actually getting to know them. I mean, he came and visited. It was incredible. And you have that spirit. So yeah. if you could, and, and then, you, you know, the other piece of this, we all forget, but it's so intrinsically important. And that is you have to keep your own life. Yeah. Some kind of joy. Mm-hmm. Lucky. 
You, know, you have I, to fill your cup a little bit or you don't have. Teachers really have to remember at the very core of this that there isn't a more rewarding career. Yeah. Because you are touching people who are such important members too often ignored and mm-hmm. forgotten of our human race, put in our care, and they in turn remind us of our riches. Whatever joy you bring or enthusiasm and, and regenerating it because it's there are hard times in all of our lives. There yeah. are lo- so many losses. How do you deal with the families? And, you know, one of the things I think should happen and the knowledge of who they are as a person that mm-hmm. you take with you every time you communicate. And I, that's what I I do think is at the heart of all this. I think you would have made a good team. (laughs) Oh, I wish, you know, if there was some way I could positively impact any of your people, I, you do it all the time, but, um, (laughs) I know (laughs) you're still laughing. It's my, you're my kind of gal. Yep. (laughs) That's all for today. Did you know it's easy to share an episode with your friends? When the podcast is open, look for three dots. Click on them and you'll see various options. You can download the episode, play it next or last, go to the show, save the episode or copy the link. Isn't technology amazing? Hey, I'm looking forward to you joining me next time. I hope you have a great week.